0: there are dates that are going to be etched into it the history of America. Uh, dates that we will never forget. 9 is one of those dates that I'm not sure any of us will ever forget what happened on 9-11. To the generation before me, or maybe two generations before me, there was another date that's etched in American history. That's December 7th, 1941. That was this date, the Japanese Imperial Army, which was led by its commander-in-chief, Admiral is uh, Isoroku Soroku uh, Yamamoto. They bombed Pearl Harbor. Bombed Pearl Harbor. 2,403 people died when, when Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7th, 1941. Though the majority of the people, of the Japanese people, did not know that this attack was about to happen, they were not aware that it was taking place. When the attack happened, they sided with their country. They, 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 they widely supported the war efforts against America. And what followed after that attack on Pearl Harbor was 44 months of war between Japan and America. In the end, that decision to attack Pearl Harbor, to attack America was devastating. Because towards the end of that war, on August 6, 1945, America dropped an atom bomb on Hiroshima, killing 140,000 people. Then, a few days later, on August 9th, 1945, an atom bomb was dropped again on Nagasaki, killing an estimated 80,000 people. What's the point that we talk about these dates that will always be remembered in our history? Is those who chose to follow their leaders into battle. They must have the foresight to see that there are consequences for their actions. They have to see, when we follow our leader into the battle, there's consequences for us supporting our leaders, for us following and obeying. In fact, this Admiral Yamamoto, he stated prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, referring to attacking America, he said, I can run wild for six months, but after that, I have no expectation of success. Even though he was willing to go forward with attacks, he also knew... And made it very clear that there is going to be a price to be paid for us to make this attack. If you have a Bible, if you want to get your Bible out, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got an usher in the back who'd love to come and bring one of these up. Slip your hand up and we'll uh, get one to you. Uh, Over here on this side, Dan. Uh, For the majority of this past year, we've been studying a series called Jesus the King. We've been looking at the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. Uh, The first half of Mark's gospel really centered on who Jesus was. Jesus was trying to teach his disciples, and he was trying to teach us the fact that he is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the Savior. The turning point of this book came in in Mark chapter 8, when the disciples... Finally, confessed. They confessed, "Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Anointed One. You are the Chosen One that we've been waiting for ever since the fall of man. Ever since Genesis chapter three, we've been waiting for this Savior." And they confessed, "Jesus, you are that Savior." And since that point, since that point that they made that confession, Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples about why he came, about the purposes for why God sent Jesus to the earth. Jesus, as the Savior, as the King, He didn't come to conserve power and and authority. Rather, He came to, 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 to establish His kingdom, which is unlike any other kingdom we've ever seen on this earth. His kingdom is a kingdom of sacrifice. His kingdom is a kingdom of sacrificial love, of humility, of service. And so here today, in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52, I want to make clear about what my intentions are and what my big idea for this message is. My, my big idea is following Jesus has implications for our lives. Just like, just like the Japanese, when they decided to, to bomb Pearl Harbor, there were going to be implications on their lives. And for us, if we are going to follow Jesus, there's going to be implications for our lives. We saw this this past week, uh, this past week, Jim Herring did a great job. He spoke on, on on Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. And we saw this idea of implications for our life. We, we saw it begin to play out because a rich run rule the, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, the, the commandments, you've got to keep the commandments. And the guy says, well, I've done all those ever since I was young. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and follow me. The implication was, if we are going to follow Jesus, if he was going to follow Jesus and become a disciple, he would have to be willing to give up everything, to give up whatever he held most dear, to give up everything to follow Jesus. And that is the same implication that applies to our life, that Jesus is going to teach us on right here and right now. So before we read, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. God, as we have this opportunity really to understand uh, why you came and, and what that what you coming has uh, to do with our lives and how it plays out. God, I pray that you would give us understanding. God, I pray that your spirit would rest on us, that we would hear your word being taught, that we would know that this isn't just a pastor's opinion. But God, this is your word speaking clearly. God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would give us the faith we need not just to hear this, but to do this, to apply this to our lives. God, I pray for your spirit to rest on us now. God, that you would meet us where we are, that you would draw us closer to you. Jesus, we love you and we ask this in your name. Amen. So the story starts out in verse 32, and it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. See, the very fact that Jesus is leading his disciples to Jerusalem uh, is evidence that Jesus is going to fulfill the purpose for why he came. See, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And in a sense, Jerusalem would have been like uh, the royal city for Jesus. Jesus, he just didn't decide on a whim, hey, let's go down south to Jerusalem. We haven't been there before. No, Jesus is going there pointedly for a specific reason, and that is to accomplish what he set out to do. Jesus, as Israel's savior, he's leading his people to his holy city to claim the, the throne of God that he rightly deserves. And Mark, in that verse, he describes the disciples as being amazed. And he describes the rest of the followers of Jesus that they were afraid. This is probably a a right description of how they would have felt. Because we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark, there's been this great tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. We've already seen there's been this tension and this animosity between the two. And all these people, they've witnessed on several occasions. They've witnessed this animosity, this this struggle between Jesus and the religious leaders. And they certainly understand that if Jesus goes all the way to Jerusalem, to the religious center of their world, if Jesus goes all the way there, there undoubtedly is going to be some major conflict between Jesus and these religious leaders. It's inevitable. And so they would have have been amazed. Jesus, you're really going to go forward. You're really going to go into Jerusalem. And you're really going to do this. And the other disciples, the other followers, they would have been afraid. Hey, we have no clue what's going to happen to him and what's going to happen to us. And so to be clear about why Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he reminds them for a third time of why Jesus came to this earth, of his impending death and resurrection. He says, looking back in verse 32, he says, And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. See, this is a pretty bleak outlook for Jesus' disciples. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and he says, this is what's going to happen when I'm in Jerusalem. I am going to be delivered up to the Sanhedrin. I'm going to be condemned to death, which means Jesus is going to be put on trial for crimes he never committed. But he's going to be put on trial. He's going to be found guilty, and he's going to be sentenced to death, and he's going to be executed by the court in a public manner. Jesus wants to be absolutely clear as to why he came. He wants to make sure his disciples understand very clearly. Jesus came to give his life as a sacrifice. Jesus came to die. That is why he came. He wants his disciples, this is the third time he's taught them this. He wants it to be very clear. He then wants them to know that he is the Lord and the Savior that God has sent to them. That is why he came. But right after Jesus says this to him, right after Jesus tells his disciples this, we see two of his disciples, they, they, they begin to ask Jesus a different question. They say in verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to Jesus, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. See James and John they pull Jesus aside and they try and manipulate him. They say Jesus, hey, we're going to ask you a G- we're going to ask you a question, Jesus, but before we do, we want you to promise you'll say yes. We want you to promise you're going to say yes to our question. And so they want to be on Jesus's right and left hand. They want to be number 1 and number 2 in, in in God's kingdom. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he sets up his throne, James and John are seeking the the top two positions on his right and on his left. See, the disciples, at this point, they are still seeking status and position in God's kingdom. Almost as if they still don't get it. They don't quite get what Jesus talked about. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Yet all they're concerned about is status and, and, and position in God's kingdom. Later in verse 41, we learn that when the rest of the disciples heard about this, they became indig- indignant. They were mad because they wanted those positions too. Who were James and John to pull Jesus aside and try and manipulate their way to get up to the, the top positions? Now, let me just say this. See, one of the reasons why I love the Word of God, one of the reasons why I can open up the Bible and I can trust what the Bible says is because the stories just like this. I mean, you got to think about this. If, if, if this book... If this book isn't true, if this book was written by a bunch of people, uh, maybe it was written by the disciples, maybe it was written by some of their followers, if this book was written by them to try and convince us to follow something that isn't true, why would they include a story like this? I mean, James and John, they they wrote several books in the New Testament. And if they're part of the authors of the New Testament, why would they include stories like this that make them look petty? That make them look foolish. That make them look like, like, like idiots. Just being honest. I mean, I mean, this gives me a confidence that this book has got to be true. Because it includes stories that don't just put them in a good light. Because I'm telling you what, if I was going to write the Bible and I wanted you to believe in what I'm putting out. Man, I'm just going to put the best foot forward. I'm going to put the best stuff out there. But we can have a little bit of confidence in God's word because for stories like this, this is real. This is life. This is truth. So they, they say to Jesus, they say, hey, we want to be on your right and your left. And Jesus hears their request and responds in verse 38. It says, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or are you able to be baptized with a baptism to which I am baptized? This is a rhetorical question here. The obvious answer is no. The baptism that Jesus is talking about, the the cup that Jesus is drinking and talking about here is is a metaphor. It's a symbolism. It's symbolism for what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. You see, the cup of wine in the Bible becomes a a symbol for God's wrath on sin. When we read about the cup that Jesus is going to drink, it's talking about the wrath of God towards sin. And the baptism he's talking about, baptism obviously can be used in a good light. But here, baptism is used in a negative light. For example, a negative light of baptism, you could say the flood. To be baptized means to be immersed And so the flood of Noah, God became indignant towards the sin on earth. And so he flooded the entire world to destroy other than what was on the ark. That was a baptism of of suffering. And so what Jesus is talking about in this baptism is he's going to be baptized into suffering. He's going to be immersed in suffering. See, Jesus was going to drink the cup of God's wrath and to be baptized into suffering for our sin. Jesus was the only one who could do it. He's the only one that could drink that cup. And can be baptized with that baptism. He was the only one that could die. And pay the penalty for our sin. So the obvious answer to this question. Can you drink the, the, the cup that I drink? Can you experience a baptism that I'm being baptized with? The obvious answer is no. No they can't. But the disciples man I love it. They're just persistent. And they're just arrogant. And they say, of course. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. See, you just got to love James and John. Yes, Jesus, we we can drink that cup. Yes, Jesus, we'll do it right with you. See, when Jesus asked them in the first place. Can you drink this cup? Can you experience this baptism? He, he implied that it was impossible. He said, to the, he said to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. This is not possible for you. Obviously, the disciples could not, uh, could not bear the actual cup of God's wrath. It would have destroyed them. It would have destroyed any one of us. If we try to, to drink the cup of God's wrath, it would completely destroy us. In fact, if anybody rejects Jesus as their savior, there will come a day when they will experience God's wrath and it will destroy them for eternity in hell. This is why Jesus came. This is the very thing that Jesus came to try to avoid. He came to drink that cup of God's wrath so we don't have to. But Jesus does say, does say that you will share in this cup and in this baptism. See, he's saying, if you genuinely follow Jesus, if you genuinely follow him, your life will be marked with the same thing that marked Jesus' life. Your life will be marked with sacrificial love, with being a servant to others, with suffering. This means that if we're followers of Jesus, these are the things that should mark our lives These are the things our lives should begin to look like. Sacrificial love, being a servant, possibly suffering. I mean, in fact, each of the three times that Jesus begins to teach his disciples about why he came, about the meaning of his death, he's tried to teach this same idea. He says, I'm the kind of Messiah that wins power through losing and through serving others. And he says, if you are my disciples, you will follow this pattern in your life. This means that we begin to assume a lifestyle like his, serving others instead of seeking to dominate and control them. That we even at times have to pay a large cost to follow Jesus, perhaps even death. I mean, look at the stories of James and John. The story of James. We know that James ends up being executed because of his faith in Jesus. John? John was exiled to an island of Patmos all on his own because of his faith in Jesus. See, these are the things that we, if we're going to truly follow Jesus, our lives will be marked by servanthood, by suffering, by sacrifice. The story continues, and it says when the ten, verse 41, and it says, when the ten others heard it, they became indignant at James and John. Again, they wanted the same status, the same positions as James and John were bartering for. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. See, Jesus, once again, he lays out the way that the kingdom of God operates. And the kingdom of God and God's story of redemption, those who would be wise, those who want to be great, they must renounce all other claims to greatness. They must seek to serve others, not to claim authority and hold on to it like it's something to be grasped, to to seek control. Jesus has already taught his disciples this idea again and again. But here he is again teaching it in more detail. Disciples must serve, not lord it over others. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And to really nail this point home for us, to help us understand it even further, verse 45, Jesus applies the same principle of servanthood, of sacrifice to his own mission. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Israel's Messiah. He's Israel's king. Yet despite all of that that he has, despite the the rightful status he has as king of whatever he would rightly be entitled to. He would have been entitled to luxury. He would have been entitled to splendor. He would have been entitled to being served. Instead, though, he came to his people as a servant of all, as a bondservant willing to obey his father's command. The ultimate act of sacrifice is when Jesus gives himself to die on the cross and place of us for our sins. So Jesus on the cross becomes two things. It becomes an example of, of, of perfect servanthood. Jesus on the cross shows us what it looks like for us to be self sacrificial, to be willing to submit ourselves for the good of others. But more importantly, on that cross, Jesus, his suffering upon that cross, accomplishes something that we could never do on our own. He dies and becomes the ransom for our sin. He becomes the ransom for our sin. So again, if we're going to try and understand this passage, and how does it fit into this big idea? There are three implications from this text for our lives if we're going to follow Jesus. Three implications for our lives. The first implication, if we're going to follow Jesus, is that our debt from sin will be paid. This is a good implication. This is a positive thing if we are going to follow Jesus, we're going to surrender into a relationship with him, then the debt for our sin will be paid. Mark uses the word here, ransom. And this is a word picture. This is a beautiful word picture that gives us a visual of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. You see, you and I, we are are sinful. Now you might say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. And God's word would say, have you ever lied? Have you ever thought a negative thought are you ever lusted of somebody else all of these things are sins and if we acknowledge that we are sinful when we get to the point where we can see that about ourselves that we don't have everything all figured out on our own we get to the point that we see that we understand that what we deserve for our sin is death what we deserve for our sin is is, is punishment and we become, in bondage, we become enslaved to sin and to Satan and to hell. But Jesus, when he came, he gave his life as a ransom on the cross. He paid that ransom debt. He paid that debt that we can't pay on our own. There's no amount of good works that we could do that would equal that ransom payment. There's no amount of of, of anything that we could do. There's no amount that we could be good enough to, to pay that ransom debt that we owe. Jesus is the only one that could pay that debt. And he came and he gave his life as a ransom so we can be freed from our sin. We can be freed from the debt of our sin so we can be free and come into a relationship with God and experience eternity in heaven. Nothing else could do that. No other payment would suffice. The only way to deal with our sin issue is through Jesus. The only way to be made right with God is through the ransom that Jesus made for you on the cross. And if you will submit to a relationship with Him, if you will give your life and follow after Him, you will experience your the ransom payment for your sin. And you will experience eternity in heaven. The second implication that Jesus teaches us about following him is that our lives will be marked with servanthood and suffering. Our lives will be marked with servanthood and suffering. Jesus has taught his disciples again that the kingdom of God is not about influence. It's not about power. It's not about authority. It's not about us trying to be better than everybody else. Jesus taught that his kingdom is about sacrifice, about being a servant, about giving your life for someone other than yourself. And Jesus here, he is that example. He didn't come to serve. Excuse me, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He came as the greatest servant of all. The implications for us for following Jesus is that we too will become a servant. If we are going to desire to be part of the kingdom of God, then we have to embrace the type of kingdom that Jesus has been teaching us about. A kingdom of sacrifice, of serving, of loving. This is the kind of kingdom where we're Christians. We're supposed to be servants. We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves to others. And get this, we're not just supposed to sacrifice ourselves for each other, for other Christians, for people that we like, for people that are comfortable. We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves for the broken, for the hurting, for the lost, for the despair, for the people around us who need God most. Those are the people we're supposed to be sacrificing ourselves to. And one of the things that I love about Jesus that gives me confidence in trusting him and following him, is Jesus never asks us to do something that he's never done himself. Jesus will never ask you to do something he's never done himself. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away for others. And when he's calling us to do the same thing, he's saying, I know it's hard because I did it too. I'm not asking you to do something I'm not willing to do on my own. I came to give my life away for others, and I'm calling you to do the same thing. Let me just ask, is this the kind of kingdom that is around us? Is this the kind of church that we are? Is this the kind of person that you are? Would you be classified as being a servant? Let me ask you this. What is it that you've sacrificed this week? What is it that you've sacrificed for another person this week? Silence. Gets a little bit uncomfortable at this point because we can think, well, you know, I went and I I worked my tail off because I'm working for a paycheck and I, I did this, I did that. And we go through these times and we realize, man, I'm not sure I sacrificed anything for anybody. Let me ask you this. What have you sacrificed for anybody in the past month? I hope these questions begin to to eat us inside. Because our lives are supposed to be marked by this. We're supposed to be servants. We're supposed to be self-sacrificial. And I just begin to wonder, do we actually live this out? Is this the way that our lives are, are, are lived? Is this the way that our church operates? Do we sacrifice ourselves for the good of the city around us? I tell you what, there are some good things happening that show me that we are a church like this. Going and serving at a Martin Luther King. This is exactly why we do this. Because we're going to go and sacrifice ourselves. We're going to sacrifice our resources. We're going to sacrifice our time for kids. For families that are sometimes in, in, in pretty desperate desperate situations. Families that are pretty broken. And we go and we love them. Because we want to see their lives changed by Jesus. Somebody will say, hey, you know, what's the Sunday of service we have coming on in a couple weeks? Let me tell you, in two weeks, December, December, why am I thinking December? June 28th, we're doing something called the Sunday of service. I tell you, what we're going to do is is we're going to meet here at Restoration Church early. We're going to meet at 930, but we aren't going to have our normal service. We aren't going to have the the music and the preaching and, and, and those things. What we're going to do is we're going to meet here, we're going to hear some instruction, and then we're going to take four different teams out of our church and go out into our community and serve in different places in the community. And you ask me, well, well, pastor, why would you do this? Why do a Sunday like this? Because this is what we're supposed to be marked by. We're supposed to be marked by sacrifice, by serving. And I tell you what, I realize I need this. I need times when people are going to structure it and force me to do it. Let me tell you, June 28th is not a Sunday to take off. June 28th is not a Sunday to sleep in and to go fishing. It is a Sunday for you to be here and to go and serve and be what Jesus called us to be, servants. This should be the most greatest attended service that we have because this is the body of Christ. This is what it means to be the hands and the feet, to get into the community, to serve and to love. I want to encourage you. Think about your life. What is it that you can do to sacrifice yourself for someone else this week? The third thing, the third implication that we're going to follow Jesus, that he has for our life, is that when our worldview, when our beliefs, they don't line up with God's word, it's us who needs to change. It's us who are wrong. See, sometimes you find that your worldview the way you think how things should operate, the way you believe, it isn't exactly line up with what Jesus taught. I mean, we see this with the disciples. The disciples are sitting there and they're arguing with Jesus. Hey, we want to be number one and number two. We want to be in your right and left hand. And you kind of get the idea they still don't get it. They still don't get what Jesus has been talking about. And the temptation is for you and I as we read these stories about James and John, and we think, man, those guys are idiots. I mean, I'm so much better than James and John. If that was me right there, I wouldn't be arguing with Jesus that I would be on his right and left hand. I wouldn't argue with Jesus about this. I mean, these guys, those guys are, are, are idiots. I'm so much better than they are. But Let me tell you what. Isaiah 55 reminds us that God's ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are, no, are not our thoughts. See, truthfully, in no way In no way should any of us be smug and overly confident about our faith, thinking we're better than them, thinking we wouldn't make the same mistakes as them. See, instead, we should be asking, and what am I missing right now? In what ways am I being blind to how God wants to work through me right now? In what ways am I being blind to how God is working right here, right now? What is God trying to say to me through his word that doesn't sit well with me. See, what happens is, is, is we begin reading God's word and, and, and God's view on things, God's view on sex and, and money and, and, and wealth and the kingdom and service and, and power and prestige and authority, they, we realize those things are different than the way that we want to believe. And if you follow God long enough, you're going to find yourself disagreeing with his word, being uncomfortable with what you're reading because it's going to cause you to realize, hey, we're talking about two different things. I think this is the way it should be, but God's word says this. And you're going to realize, man, we've got these differing opinions. I'll tell you, I've experienced this recently. I've got this thing going on. I've got this deep wound. Somebody has, has 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 hurt me in a deep way, and it and it and it and it's been it's this painful circumstance that I've been wronged, and in my mind, this person has wronged me, and they need to they need to apologize, they need to come to me and seek reconciliation, they need to come to me and apologize and make things right. But I know that Colossians three thirteen, I know that it says bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, nowhere, nowhere in that verse does it say, I can forgive them when they come and seek it. I can forgive them when they've earned my forgiveness. In fact, it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. If I know the way that Jesus forgave me, he offered forgiveness when none of us deserved it. He offered forgiveness when none of us took a step towards him. He offered forgiveness on that cross when we continue to sin repeatedly against him. And I find myself arguing with God. I find myself arguing, God is not fair. God is not fair. I didn't do anything wrong, God. It's not fair. I don't want to do that. I don't want to forgive him first. But I know that God's not going to budge. He's not going to say, okay, Kevin, you've been deeply hurt. You know, it's okay. You don't have to forgive him right now. Wait till he forgives you. Nah, Jesus isn't going to budge. What Jesus is going to do, he's going to say, Kevin, I understand you're hurting. But this is what is true. I'm the Lord of your life. I know what's best for you. Trust me. Trust me and obey See, if we understand that following Jesus has implications on our lives, this means that when there is a disconnect or a disagreement between what Jesus says and what God's word says and what we want to believe, it means that it is us who is wrong, not God. Whether it's our view on marriage, whether it's our view on sin, whether it's our view on forgiveness, we can't discredit God because he doesn't fit the way that we want to believe. No, it is us who needs to repent. It's us who needs to change. We don't set the rules. When God's word confronts our own worldview, the way thing, we, thinks we, should, we, we think things should operate, we don't have the right to discredit or, or doubt or, or disbelieve God. This is a time for us to repent and submit to Him. We have to remember that even though it's hard, and even though His kingdom is, is, is different than the way we, we want things to be, We have to remember that his kingdom is infinitely better than our own ideas. He is the Lord of our lives. and He cares so deeply for us. He knows what is best for us. We just have to trust and obey and submit. How do we know he cares for us? We don't have any time left, but there's a story at the end that tells us of of Jesus' care for us. We'll read through verses 46, starting in verse 46. And it says, They came to Jericho, and he was, as he was leaving Jericho when it, with his disciples, in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the, by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man to him, saying, take heart, get up, he is calling to you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the last story of healing in in Mark's account of Jesus' life, in Mark's gospel. And we need to understand, Jesus, he's just a little bit preoccupied. He's headed to Jerusalem to accomplish a very specific mission. And you can imagine the weight and the stress that he feels. The burden he feels going to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to suffer on the cross for our sin. And, and, and how does he respond? Does he respond frustrated that this guy wants him to do something? Does he, does he, get, does he get, ha, have a lack of patience No. Jesus shows us how great he is. He's about to pay the infinite debt of our sin on our behalf, carrying a weight that you and I have no clue what that weight feels like. And even though he's preoccupied with his specific mission of going to Jerusalem, he takes time for this blind man who continued to cry out after being told to be quiet. Jesus asked him, what can, what can I do for you? Bartimaeus said, just give me my sight. And in an instant, Jesus gave it to him. Even though Jesus was busy, even though Jesus had a ton of things, he stopped and he served and he sacrificed. So you want to know why we can follow Jesus and trust our lives to him? Even with the implications, of what it means for us to follow him, we can trust him because he loves and cares for us in ways that nobody else would or nobody else could. See, if you follow jesus you're going to be surprised at just how much he loves and cares for you see i find days when i'm depressed and i feel lonely i feel completely alone and then i open up god's word and i see the promise that god gave towards me and you and deuteronomy that says i will never leave you nor forsake you and i'm reminded i'm not alone I have days when I feel like such a failure, like I've made the same dumb mistake again and again and again, day after day. And it seems like I can't get my life in order. And again, God's word reminds me of the promise in Lamentations chapter 3, that God's love never ceases, that his mercies are new every day. And every day is a new beginning for us. I have days when I feel like there's no way that God could love me. I'm just too bad. I'm just too messed up. And I'm reminded of First John that says he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us on, in our place. I'm reminded of Psalm 139 that says there is nowhere that I can flee from the presence of God. I'm reminded of Romans 8 that tells me there's nothing that I can do that can separate me from the love of God through Jesus Christ. And I can be comforted to know that even though I feel like I'm not worthy, I know that God's word says I am. I have days when I feel so overwhelmed with the load I have to carry, with the circumstances and the trials and the struggles. And again, God's word reminds me and comforts me in Psalm 46 that says, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the, Lord, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam through the mountains, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, if you follow Jesus, you may be lonely and weary and despaired, but then you will open up God's word. You hear the promises that he has made, that he loves you and cherishes you and respects you no matter what. He is going to love and to serve you, and he's going to do it willingly. Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to. He made promises to be with you forever because he wanted to, because he loves you. He is not under any obligation to love or to serve or to comfort or to protect or to sacrifice. He chose to love you. It is his delight to show his love to you, to bring you life, to bring you joy. Because he is a savior who cares for you. How do we bring this to a close? We do it like this. We have implications if we're going to follow Jesus with our lives. There's implications in our lives. We can have our debt forgiven, our sin debt forgiven. We also understand the second implication is that our lives should be marked by suffering and sacrifice. A third implication we learned was that what was the third one? Oh, yeah. That when our when our worldview, when our beliefs, they don't align with Scripture, they don't align with God's Word, that it's us who needs to change and not Him. Let me tell you, I know sometimes it can be hard to live in light of God's kingdom, to do things God's way, but I'm telling you, it is so worth it because He is a God who cares for you more than you could ever know. He willingly came and sacrificed his life for you. He willingly came and gave himself away for you. And because he was willing to do that, I know that he is a savior worth following. He is a savior worth giving your life to. Question is, will we do it? You pray with me?